My name is David Scobie. I'm the Dean of the New School for Public Engagement uh, here at the New School. And it's my great pleasure to give you a Dean's welcome to Ties That Bind, Reimagining Juvenile Justice and Child Welfare for Teens, Families, and Communities, a Child Welfare Forum presented by our Center for New York City Affairs. Uh, I say that I'm giving you the Dean's welcome uh, because it's a, a full-throated, passionate, and sincere welcome to a vibrant event that I don't have time to stay for. Um, but I, I do have the privilege of being able to, to convene it. Within our mission, uh, the Center for New York City uh, Affairs is squarely in our sweet spot, and I'm, I'm proud and delighted that, that uh, we, we host the city within the, the new school. The, the mission of the city is a unique one, I think, for an academic institution, integrating um, policy analysis and research and advocacy and public communications meant to inform public policy in New York, especially around issues uh, that affect working class uh, communities and families uh, and children and aim to make a more decent and just city and metropolitan community uh, for them. Today's forum on issues of juvenile justice couldn't be more important uh, as part of that uh, of those goals and I know this is a propitious moment uh, for the reform and strengthening of the juvenile justice uh, system so this is an important topic at an important uh, time. I also want to thank uh, the able and terrific staff of the Center for New York City Affairs and especially its director and my colleague Andrew White uh, and I want to turn the podium over to Andrew to frame up the discussion and introduce our guests for today. Thank you. Thanks, David. Good morning. I'm very glad you could all be here. As David said, the center is dedicated to um, advancing innovation and effectiveness in the programs and services that government runs and government funds in New York City, particularly as they affect children and families. So over the last couple of years, we've published three issues of Child Welfare Watch. The first was on the desperate need for change in the state's juvenile justice system, the juvenile correction system upstate primarily. The second was on teens aging out of foster care and their very high rates of homelessness and family instability. And then most recently, we published an issue about a topic that gets far less attention and far fewer resources, but it's also of critical importance whether you work in child welfare or in juvenile justice. And that's the partnerships between these systems and the communities they serve. The often unrecognized collaborations between the nonprofit agencies, government, and community institutions, including just residents themselves, congregations, and, and other informal associations. For the last few years, ACS has funded community partnerships in 11 New York City neighborhoods. The partnerships receive only a modest amount of funds, just $150,000 a piece from the city. But in some neighborhoods, they play an outsized role. In some of these communities, the partnerships are helping promote participation of local people and organizations in critical aspects of the child welfare system. They're creating a degree of transparency and understanding for child welfare and for how that system works and for how child protection works. In some communities, the partnerships are helping to organize networks of services for supporting families. In a few cases, they're actually getting local congregations and residents to help parents who are in difficult situations. 
we've seen in New York and in other cities how this kind of network can help protect children from neglect and can help keep families away from the edge of a severe crisis. In our reporting, we've also seen a couple of projects within the partnerships that are proving to be very interesting and, and in some cases very valuable tools for improving the practice of child welfare. And we'll talk about some of these on the panel. The first is the inclusion of community representatives in ACS child safety conferences. So when a parent is first investigated on the suspicion of abuse or neglect and Child Protective Services decides that they need to remove and place the child in foster care, they call a child safety conference. And last year, in about 15% of these cases, community partnerships sent either a parent advocate or another community representative from the local neighborhood near the field office to the session. These are trained community reps, and their role is to give parents their moral support, to help them understand what's going on, to help them have a voice in that conference, to express their opinions, and if possible, to help them understand what they need to do next to make sure that their kid comes home. I won't go into great detail here, but in sitting in on these sessions and in interviewing participants, we've seen some incredibly impressive results. They don't always work, but in many cases, it very clearly changes the dynamic of the, of the, of the conference. And sometimes they can help move the case in such a productive direction that a child goes home quickly or doesn't leave the home. The other especially valuable program that we write about in this report is about the visiting hosts and visit coaches for foster children and their parents, which have been coordinated by some of the partnerships. For a decade, advocates and staff at ACS and at some of the foster care agencies have tried hard to find more hospitable and positive ways for parents to spend time with their children who are in foster care. It's a fundamental part of, of helping children return home, having a good visit regularly, is one of the best things you can do to help a child get home. But in the antiseptic um, uh, offices of an agency, it's not always the best place. So alternative spaces are valuable, and that's what the partnerships have been able to bring, along with the coaches. So the partnerships do invaluable work, but the reality is they remain on the margins of the foster care system. And that's really what much of the report is about. They're starved for resources and they haven't really had the opportunity to prove their effectiveness in the way that's needed. More to the point of today's session, there may well be valuable ways for the community partnerships to play a role in organizing local engagement in realms beyond child protection and foster care, including juvenile justice and youth development and health care and mental health, senior services and so on. And some of them are trying to do that, but again, these are very small organizations. The communities we're talking about today, the neighborhoods where the partnerships are active, are among those with the very highest rates of involvement with both child welfare and juvenile justice services. And the numbers are fairly staggering. We recently calculated that more than one-tenth of the city's school-age children, more than 100,000 children, come into contact with either child welfare or juvenile justice services every year in New York City. And that's not counting kids younger than school age, and that's not counting teens who are stopped and frisked and even arrested if they don't go into detention. So that's a lot of our fellow New Yorkers. These are communities under constant engagement with government services. And in New York City, as in many cities, to be a poor family that's connected with these systems is to be a family under a microscope. 
As most of you know, ACS is in the midst of two very high-profile or potentially high-profile projects that offer a great deal of hope of improvement for teens and their families in these neighborhoods. The first is the realignment of the city's juvenile justice system. If the plan put forward by Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bloomberg last month goes forward through the legislature, young teens in trouble with the law will no longer be sent hundreds of miles away to correctional facilities run by the state, at least those who would have been adjudicated to non-secure and limited secure placement. Instead, most of them will remain in or near the city in residences or alternative programs run by nonprofit organizations. This follows on years of work developing alternatives like the ACS Juvenile Justice Initiative, which provides intensive supports and counseling, family counseling, to help young people remain at home with their families, even after they've committed some serious crimes. The second big innovation emerging at ACS builds directly on that initiative, and it's an effort to take the lessons of the Juvenile Justice Initiative and related programs that the city has used to apply them into child welfare to prevent teenagers from being placed in foster care. So in the next hour and a half, we'll try to discuss all of this, or at least some of it. Ron Richter has worked on many sides of these issues. He's been a law guardian at Legal Aid. He's been the head of ACS's family court team. He's been a city hall policymaker, and he's been a judge in family court. Now he's not only legally responsible for 14,000 foster children, but he's also the boss of nearly 7,000 employees. Not sure which is the bigger challenge. <laughs> Commissioner Richter. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I am pleased uh, to participate um, in this uh, Milano School New Schools Forum on reimagining juvenile justice and child welfare for teens, families, and communities. Um, the timing uh, is perfect. Um, I want to begin by thanking Andrew uh, White and the Center for New York City Affairs uh, for being uh, such dedicated advocates <clears throat> for the children and families of New York City. Um, Andrew mentioned Kendra and Abigail. They have been consistent. Uh, Consistent and supportive, and while um, I may not personally in this current role endorse everything that's in this most recent edition of The Watch, um, there's no question that The Watch is exactly uh, what its title uh, says, and that is that it watches in more depth what we are doing in child welfare and juvenile justice uh, than any other journal of its kind. And in New York City, uh, we are so fortunate to have uh, so many individuals who are carefully looking out for our kids, uh, our youth, our families, and thinking um, in such uh, careful ways about what we're doing, not just government, but our providers, um, and even advocates looking at advocates and asking about whether uh, the things that we're uh, looking to do and fighting for make the most sense for uh, the people that we care about. Um, and that really says a lot. And The Watch um, uh, thinks about it, puts it out there, and creates uh, forums like this um, to help us ask questions of those of us who are um, actually making some of the decisions. So thank you very much to Andrew and the center. Um, at the, um, um, the report that we're all here talking about initially, um, 
talks about some of the positive impacts of the community partnerships, um, including, as Andrew mentioned, uh, the benefits of our family team conferences. And as many of you know, family team conferences um, have been around for a long time out there uh, in the country and serve as a model to bring um, participants that families know about um, into critical decisions in child welfare. Um, and we have seen, not surprisingly, that um, in one case at uh, critical um, decisions when children may be removed from parents, we have actually seen that um, when there are family members and community members present at um, at uh, team conferences, the number of removals goes down. Um, you also see that when a uh, family team conference is properly facilitated, uh, parents come out feeling as though they didn't have um, uh, an experience that was um, as uh, tumultuous and difficult as they might otherwise have had. Um, so while uh, children's services may not agree with all of the conclusions and recommendations um, that uh, the watch included, um, we certainly will think about them and um, they will inform us as we move forward. Um, Chapin Hall um, is conducting an evaluation of community partnerships currently for ACS and is focusing on three specific activities. Um, conferencing um, with a specific focus on the differences in outcomes when a community representative participates in a case conference the impact that a community member can have as a supervisor um, during visits for parents and children when children are in out-of-home care, and the impact that community partners or community representatives can have in helping us recruit foster families. And this is critical. Um, because we're not just looking for community partners to help us um, uh, stand on street corners in the most crass way and say to neighbors, would you consider being a foster parent and if you will, please sign this list. We are looking for community partners to certify foster homes, to pursue leads and help us get foster families recruited and certified in the neighborhoods where our foster our kids need foster homes. Um, that's a tall order, but that's what we want to see community partners do. Um, and so um, we have Chapin Hall looking at, um, at those three activities. Um, this analysis will help us assess the program, um, the progress that each partnership has made and what they're capable of doing um, with respect to what we think these three core activities um, these three core activities uh, represent um, and, and what we think are benchmarks of success and, and, and evidence of progress. Now, um, it's obvious to most of you and obvious to me that um, these aren't the only activities that we could be looking at. Um, many people advocate for um, community partnerships um, being stationed um, in schools, for example, uh, having a social worker uh, in a local school and having a school refer uh, a, a, a parent to a community partner so that there's support for parents in helping young people get to school. 
Um, that's, that's, a, that's a different use of a community partner, helping uh, families uh, reduce the uh, occurrence of truancy. There are lots of different, and, and the list could go on, that's one other example. Um, we've decided to focus on these three activities because we think they are clearly linked to child welfare outcomes that we care about, making conferences more effective, making visiting more effective because we think that will reduce the length of stay for kids in care, and recruiting good foster homes in neighborhoods where our kids come from so that they have less disruption. They can stay in the same schools. So we picked these three activities because we think they matter a lot. Um, but there's no question that we could have picked other activities. Again, I want to acknowledge that um, Child Welfare Watch's focus on uh, these partnerships um, matters. Um, I'm going to move on um, and talk a little bit uh, next about, uh, about reimagining juvenile justice and child welfare uh, for teens, uh, the next topic on our agenda. Um, it is uh, fortuitous uh, that we have this on the agenda as ACS is currently expanding services and planning for teens uh, to secure their futures. Um, this, as you may know, is one of the six priorities recently released in our strategic plan uh, for the agency, and there are two areas uh, where we are focused on uh, teens that I'm going to talk about. Um, the first, as Andrew mentioned, is expanding in-home intensive services for teens to reduce maltreatment and subsequent, subsequent placement of teens in foster care. And then, as Andrew also mentioned, uh, the city and state's efforts at reforming our juvenile justice system. So we're moving away from the partnerships and into juvenile justice and uh, teen uh, services, our teen services pilot. Okay. So uh, the discussion of our teen services pilot uh, project is to provide intensive home-based therapeutic services to teens and their families involved in or at risk of entering the child welfare system. And I want to be clear here um, that our belief, children's services value, is that by building strong families, we are building strong communities. There's a lot of conversation out there about the fact that ACS um, has not uh, recently um, been about partnerships with communities. And it is critical um, in our view that without supporting families, without helping parents keep their children at home, without helping parents get their children to school, keeping their children out of trouble, giving parents real guidance in keeping them out of the criminal justice system, keeping them, keeping them in positive activities, helping them raise their teen so that they can then raise their younger children effectively, we are not creating the fabric for safe communities. And our belief is that by supporting parents with robust, real preventive services, we are, in fact, as a government agency, as children's services, building strong communities. And these services are going into our city's um, neighborhoods where our reports are coming from, which are the neighborhoods that you know of. Do you want me to take questions while? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. 
Um, so building upon our successes using evidence-based models and the Juvenile Justice Initiative and Family Assessment Program, ACS is expanding our evidence-based models of preventive services to meet the critical needs of teens who are at risk of foster care placement as the result of child abuse and maltreatment. And as I said, our belief that families are the fabric of our communities um, and evidence-based models such as functional family therapy and multisystemic therapy are all about empowering parents to keep their teens at home. We think that we can help to keep New York City's communities intact, keeping our youth there at home being raised by their parents. Evidence-based models are based on validated research demonstrating good outcomes. They've all been studied over the course of the past 35 years. They're home-based so that young people remain at home instead of coming into our foster care system where we know that teens have poor outcomes. They're holistic. Instead of families being referred to lots of different providers, it's one licensed social worker at the kitchen table working with the mother the child, it's usually a mother. If there's a father, it's the father. If there are siblings, siblings. They're focused on a concrete model of family engagement where there are clear expectations, not just for the family, but also for the therapist so that there's, a, um, there's equality there in the model. And there is consistent um, quality assurance built into the model so that you don't just have the family and the provider uh, working together, you also have a layer of integrity from the model developer that you pay for, which makes this model cost more. These evidence-based, uh, I like to think of it as the social worker at the kitchen table. There is a real presence in the deliver of these, delivery of this, this model um, at, at the home. So it is not the parent dragging the kid to uh, an agency. It is the, uh, the, the front door getting a knock consistently from a social worker who is um, in your face, at your kitchen table, um, being part of your life. Um, and it is not a long-term kind of intervention. Um, it is relatively short in the way we work with families. They come in, um, you know, like a tornado kind of thing, and they, and, they, and they help the parent learn how to get control, and they make it very clear to the teen that, um, that their parent is the parent. They are not the one who's going to set the rules. Um, the parent is. Um, and that message needs to be set very strongly. And so the initial intervention is quite powerful, um, four or five times a week for a substantial amount of hours. Um, and then it recedes. These evidence-based modalities include, as I said, functional family therapy, which is known as FFT. These are the big acronyms. Multidimensional family therapy, MDFT, multisystemic therapy, MST, and then there are adaptations. Multidimensional treatment, foster care, MDFT. You could really go crazy. <laughs> Learn them all. I've been saying them long enough that I kind of know them. 
Since 2007, as some of you know, New York City Children's Services has used, through our Juvenile Justice Initiative, these models to provide intensive evidence-based services for youth in our juvenile justice system. The goals of JJI are to promote public safety in our juvenile justice system um, and to reduce recidivism, to stop kids from committing crimes. And we have done so. Improved individual um, and family functioning is obviously also a goal reduce the number of delinquent youth in residential facilities because kids do not belong in institutions and safely shorten our lengths of stay for youth that are placed in residential care. So that means that instead of keeping a young person in an institution for uh, two, three years, we are um, shortening the length of stay by setting up aftercare that is one of these models. Our investment in JJI and juvenile justice reform efforts have paid dividends, not um, in money as much as in lives. We've gone from over 1,467 youth in 2005 being placed in OCFS-operated facilities and private placements to a little less than 550 youth. That means that those youth are at home in their communities with their parents being parented, going to school in their schools, not with 100% attendance, not getting A's, not necessarily on the honor roll, but not getting rearrested for higher-level crimes most of the time, but at home, seeing a different future than um, being in prison prep, quite frankly. And that's positive. That's positive for the fabric of our communities. Based on what we've learned um, with our success in JJI, early last year, ACS launched a new continuum of evidence-based services that is now available to our PINs, uh, our PINs youth, and that is through our family assessment program known as FAP. FAP provides diversion services to thousands of families each year who are seeking to file a PINS petition in family court. PINS are also known as status offenders or CHINS kids, depending on what state you uh, come from. I think Massachusetts, they call them CHINS. Um, youth up to 18 who are charged with offenses unique to their status as juveniles, including truancy, ungovernability, and running away from home. For anyone who's worked in family court, there are Article 7 cases. People see them. They drop the petition and run in the other direction. There's not that much that the family court can do about these cases. So what, what, what ACS has tried to do is figure out how to um, get um, at the front door with probation and do something helpful for these families. And we think that in a lot of cases, these are kids who have um, really troubled um, circumstances. They've got parents who are at their wits end. No parent in their right mind wants to come to the family court with their teenager. And so what we've done is we've tried to stop um, the family dysfunction earlier, um, prevent delinquency, and offer these evidence-based models. We've been able to reduce the number of PINs from 523 in 2010 to 393 in 2011. That's a reduction of approximately 25% in the course of less than a year. Again, um, progress. And our goal is to take these kinds of models of intensive services that have been proven to work and apply them to the child welfare setting. And so um, where we are going here is that ACS is going to um, 
in the calendar year 2010 um, address the fact that 32 percent or 19,313 of our abuse and maltreatment investigations that are that have been conducted by our Division of Child Protection involved teens. So, to, to, so let me say that again. 32% of our Division of Child Protection investigations in 2010 involved teens. So that's a third. And these investigations resulted in about 1,400 teens being placed in foster care. And I will repeat what I said earlier. Teens in foster care is generally not um, going to result in good outcomes because teens don't like to be in care. Um, teens like to be at home. And, um, and so what you're setting yourself up for are putting your providers in a tough spot because they really struggle with teenagers, as do, does anyone who's ever raised a teenager know. Um, and so we are now moving programmatically to deal with this stagnation um, because our approach thus far has been unsuccessful. So we are going to now be proactive so that the numbers don't continue to stay the same. Um, ACS is committed to preventing out-of-home placement of these teens as long as home-based therapeutic services will be able to help teenagers remain in their communities at home with their parents. ACS anticipates that by providing uh, home-based intensive services like the services I described, we'll be able to further reduce foster care placements, improving family function, functioning, reducing truancy, and other teen-specific behaviors, which is what these models are designed to do. And we hope this um, will, as I've said many times, keep families together in their communities and empower parents, which is the goal. We are currently piloting these models of intensive preventive services in Manhattan and in one zone in the Bronx. In phase one, ACS will be working with two of our current providers um, who provide evidence-based services. New York Foundling is doing functional family therapy, um, child welfare program, FFTCW, that's another acronym, and Children's Village, um, also here and I believe on the advisory board, so this is probably a conflict for me to mention it, um, multi-systemic therapy program, MST. During this phase of the project, ACS is going to be tracking the cases uh, to identify lessons learned to inform practice modifications and ultimately uh, citywide implementation. We recently released a concept paper, which is available on our website that describes these services. We will be issuing a request for proposals for additional evidence-based services and other promising practices that have been implemented successfully with the teen population and child welfare systems. This is a substantial investment in evidence-based models in child welfare. It is a hefty number. We believe that by making this uh, financial commitment to families and teenagers, because the numbers are so significant in terms of the reports, um, that we will empower parents to take care of their teenagers, which has driven for so many years um, the number of teens coming into care. And again, by empowering parents, we will strengthen the fabric of our communities. That's the goal. Um, I think that I am now going to move on to juvenile justice realignment because I'm I'm talking too much. So, um, juvenile justice realignment. Uh, again, I think that um, the stars have been aligned um, with Governor Cuomo, Mayor Bloomberg, and I do want to say 
um, the foundation that has been laid by um, Commissioner Gladys Carrion over the years to really set us up to be in a position um, to um, to do what I hope we are about to do, which is enact the legislation called Close to Home. Um, you know, we have been talking a lot about this law um, and uh, what it could mean, and I, I, I don't think that you can for a moment um, not uh, stop and cherish the opportunity to have New York City's youth um, moved hundreds of miles south uh, to actually um, be confined when necessary um, in locations that are just miles away from their mothers and fathers and siblings um, to be rehabilitated. Um, and while there, of course, in New York City, when anything like this happens, is immediately a rush to ask hundreds of important questions about how we're going to do this right. Um, and I am... Um, a New Yorker through and through, so I wouldn't expect anything other than hundreds and hundreds of questions, and I feel very lucky that I'm the person standing before you because the questions are all coming at me and my team um, and Commissioner Schiraldi's team, and well, they should be. Um, but I don't want those questions to stop us from cherishing the moment that we are in, that, we, um, that, the, that the stars have been aligned and we may actually be able to bring our kids home. Because when you talk about strengthening communities and empowering parents, um, we may never see this moment again. So um, we should really um, celebrate that we got here. Um, because if this legislation passes, it will be um, a real opportunity for young people and their families in New York City. Um, the buses will no longer be heading upstate, and parents, namely mothers, will no, no longer be crying um, the loss of their kids. Um, we will do it in a way that this, the public is safe, and that is a critical, critical uh, component of this, and in a way that children will be educated and get DOE credit, and in a way that children's psychiatric needs are met, this is a heavy lift, but we should cherish the moment that we're being offered this opportunity. So. So as part of the state budget proposal, Governor Cuomo included an initiative called Close to Home to ensure that New York City youth involved in the juvenile justice system receive services in New York City. It is a sweeping reform that transfers responsibility for all but the most dangerous young people placed by New York City Family Court, and that's the designated felons, um, to New, uh, placed by New York City Family Court um, in New York City, that's non-secure and limited secure, so that they can be rehabilitated, supervised, and when necessary, confined near their families in their communities. Close to home does not affect youth in OCFS secure. Um, those are the juvenile offenders. Um, so we're looking at about 600 youth who will be receiving services in the city, including those currently served in non-secure and limited secure. Family court judges will retain discretion to set minimum sentences for young people placed in limited secure placements, just like their colleagues in the rest of the state. In addition, as mentioned, New York City is going to build on its success using evidence-based alternatives to placement that reduce recidivism to keep our city safe. 
safe. And Commissioner Schiraldi at the Department of Probation is also working on innovative models that are alternatives to placement to add to the continuum. Many of you are already aware of the work that he is doing. Parents, um, as I've described, are going to have a social worker working closely with them in these alternative to placement models. I don't need to repeat that. The city will work with not-for-profit providers to build a continuum of non-secure and limited secure residential placements for the youth who require various levels of confinement that train young people how to manage their behaviors while protecting and supporting neighborhoods. Locally operated programs will be more cost-effective than state placements. Young people in the realigned close-to-home juvenile justice system will be educated by New York City school teachers and earn Department of Education school credits toward graduation. The city will develop a plan that will be submitted to the state for public comment. And as we work on the plan, we are meeting with and listening to input from young people, their family members, legislators, community members, advocates, and others, so that our plan reflects their perspectives. We are currently working on identifying which communities, um, which five communities, the most kids come from that are currently in placement, and we are setting up um, community forums uh, for parents and kids and other interested parties to come to. Um, this was a suggestion that just recently came up at um, one of my advisory, my first advisory board as the, as the commissioner, um, and we are um, working on that right now so that we can actually um, publicize these meetings and go out uh, myself, uh, Larry Bushing, who you'll hear from, and others from ACS to give um, actual community members the opportunity to have input into um, what this plan should look like. A Reliant New York City Juvenile Justice Program will be overseen by staff members of the Office of Children and Family Services dedicated to the oversight of the city's juvenile placement program. The young people in care will also have the benefit of ready access to their families, probably the people who care most about them in the world, and attorneys, social workers, and therapists who will be much closer and easier to consult with under the current system. You cannot overstate the value of young people having their lawyers in the same place that they are as a former children's lawyer. In addition, the New York City Council has been a critical partner with the city in the development of program uh, priorities for youth currently served in the juvenile justice system along with their council oversight role of our work, both of which they will continue to play in a realigned system. Realignment, as I said, builds on Mayor Bloomberg's redesign of the city's juvenile justice detention system and development of alternatives to placement so that youth, whenever possible, may remain at home with intensive services consistent with public safety and risk assessment. These reforms have achieved the twin goals of simultaneously reducing both confinement and reoffending. And we are grateful uh, for the mayor's longstanding commitment to reform over the course of his administration. And I um, am again going to acknowledge and thank OCFS Commissioner Gladys Carrion. She too um, has been a champion of young people involved in our juvenile justice system during her tenure. She has highlighted the limitations of the state system and led the efforts to reform 
and improve it. It should be noted that Commissioner Gladys Carrion also established the first Missouri model in New York City known as Brooklyn for Brooklyn or B for B. It focuses on the positive development of youth in a setting linked close to their homes and communities. We look forward to forming a work group. I think we're starting next week with Commissioner Carrion to work on the plan to transition services for youth in non-secure and limited secure settings to the city. And of course, um, we are ever grateful to, commission, uh, to Governor Cuomo's leadership for including this bold initiative in his budget and reform proposal. We believe that this will produce better outcomes for our kids and their families while maintaining public safety. Uh, there is much work to be accomplished in the coming months, and we welcome the opportunity to be partners with interested members of the community who want to improve the future of our city's youth. The opposite of closer to home is far away from home, and nobody wants our kids to be far away from home. In conclusion, I hope that you find these two plans, um, investing in preventive services for our teenagers that are evidence-based and that are modeled on JJI and FAP, hopeful, um, and I hope you see them as investing in parents, which is investing in our communities. I hope you find them exciting. I know you must find close to home exciting. Um, we hope that you will join Children's Services in moving these efforts forward for our young people, their families, and their communities, because it is our view that they deserve nothing less. Thank you very much. So I want to bring up the panelists now, I'll quickly introduce them so we can have a little bit of a discussion before Commissioner has to go back to City Hall. Um, Mike Arsham is Executive Director of the Child Welfare Organizing Project. He is um, he's a social worker who's been working in this field for 20 years and has been um, Director of CWAP now f for as long as I've been at the new school, 1998, I think. Um, next to him is Angela Watson, who is Program Director for the MST Juvenile Justice Initiative Project at SCO Family of Services in Brooklyn. And next to her is Gabrielle Prisco, who is Director of the Juvenile Justice Project at the Correctional Association and a former attorney in Juvenile Rights Division at Legal Aid. Uh, the young person who was going to be on the panel this morning, unfortunately, was unable to make it today. Uh, she called in not feeling well, so we'll do our best to represent her point of view, but I don't know that I can do that myself. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of young people, and I think we've, that's certainly going to inform these questions. So I want to make sure that we get a couple of questions to the commissioner. Um, first off, you said there's going to be $22 million for these evidence-based programs. Is that going to come out of the $230 million that goes to preventive services, or is this on top of the baseline money for preventive? Do you know? Um, did I say $22 million? You did. Yes. <laughs> did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, that's a very specific question. And the... And, I'm, and I'm getting coached. Yeah. It's on top of. The answer is, oh, I'm so happy that's the answer. Um, 
how fortunate for me. So the answer is no. It's it's an addition. It's an it's an additional twenty two million. Thank you for saying that. It's important, it, and it's a good answer. If you look in the next front of question, the, yeah. If you look in the front of the watch, there's a, 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 a analysis of the budgets, and one of the interesting things over the last few years is that preventive has sort of been hitting 230 million and hasn't grown beyond that. This will be a pretty substantial boost to that with very intensive services. Um, another key question that I've heard from quite a few people. So many of the young people sent to upstate placement now, including the residential nonprofit programs, but especially the OCFS programs, have already been modified out of other programs. You know, they've, they've already struggled in their initial um, adjudicated uh, placement. Um, so how is this going to be different? You're going to have nonprofit organizations running programs here in the city that are going to be for kids who've already struggled or kids who would have already struggled mightily in mm-hmm. such programs. Mm-hmm. How will these programs be different? Uh, so that's a good question. And um, I think that the, the first answer that comes uh, to my mind is that when young people have failed in the evidence-based models and been violated on probation, um, they have failed at home um, because even the evidence-based models have not provided strong enough supervision to them. And what having them close to home in a limited secure model offers is the combination of a limited secure setting that we will design uh, that will be, um, we hope, smaller than most OCFS facilities and have a behavior modification model uh, that that includes um, psychological and psychiatric treatment. But probably most critical is it will also include the involvement of a family member. And for young people who are 14 and 15, um, anybody who knows anything about adolescent brain development knows that separating them completely from the people that they love and the people that they know to try to extract um, rehabilitation, success, hope from them is very hard. And so my immediate answer to that question is it will be different if they know that their kin, I don't know if it's a mother, an aunt, a father, an uncle, will be coming to participate in sessions with them um, weekly, twice weekly. Um, I think that we have to provide security and make sure that we're careful about that if they've been placed limited secure. But the incorporation of family into rehabilitation, I think, is promising um, and will, I hope, net um, better outcomes. So, you know, what does it take to work with you? You're on the B4B um, advisory board in Brooklyn, right, Michael? And, and what does it take to, for young people to be secure in their communities? And how do you see what ACS is doing, strengths and weaknesses, quickly, if you can frame that. And, and pose that as a question? To yeah, the sure. If you want to pose a question to him. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, Andrew, I'm, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think okay. I'm going to answer the question I, I wish you had asked, if, uh -huh. if that's okay. Um, so, oh, okay. Is that better? Can people hear? Okay. So, um, I made a new friend last week. Um, alienated a lot of old ones, but I, I made at least one new one. And, and um, her name is Helen Epstein, and, and she's a molecular biologist and a journalist. And in 1993, Helen moved to Uganda in hopes of developing a vaccine for HIV-AIDS. And um, that was devastating the African continent at that time, even to a greater extent than it is today. Uh, she didn't develop the vaccine, but over the next 15 years, she watched the people of Uganda develop community-based strategies for preventing infection and, and slowing the spread of the disease, some of which were remarkably effective, where um, government and philanthropic and ideologically driven campaigns like abstinence-only campaigns had failed completely. Uh, and she wrote a really fascinating book about this that I recommend highly. It's called The Invisible Cure. Helen Epstein, The Invisible Cure. I just want to start by reading a brief passage from it. Like many newcomers to Africa, I learned early on that the most successful AIDS projects tended to be conceived and run by Africans themselves or by missionaries and aid workers with long experience in Africa. In other words, by people who really knew the culture. The key to their success resided in something for which the public health field currently has no name or program. It is best described as a sense of solidarity, compassion, and mutual aid that brings people together to solve a common problem that individuals can't solve on their own. The closest thing to it might be Harvard sociologist Felton Earle's concept of collective efficacy, meaning the capacity of people to come together and help others they're not necessarily related to. Where, and this is the key part to me. Where missionaries and aid workers have intentionally or not suppressed this spirit, the results have been disappointing. Where they've built on these qualities, their efforts have often succeeded remarkably well. What this means to me is, is um, in the course of, and thanks for saying 20, but it's actually like close to the 35-year career in, in, um, in child welfare at this point, um, I've come to understand and believe in something very similar about protecting children. And that is that there is great strength and wisdom and compassion even and maybe especially in, in the most economically stressed New York City communities. Parents and communities are the first and generally the best line of defense for their own children. When government and professionals and philanthropists support neighborhood-led self-help initiatives, communities can be very proficient at solving their own problems. But when outside actors attempt to impose their own vision, enforce their own standards of behavior, or simply to assume that they know what's best for people from cultures and communities very unlike their own, they can actually become just one more source of risk to children and families. Thank you. Um, the, the integration of, of child welfare and juvenile justice services in New York City holds great promise and great potential, but it also holds this kind of risk. Um, I, I agree totally with Commissioner Richter that, that Gladys Carrion has shown tremendous vision and courage in, in the work that she's done in moving us towards a community-based model of juvenile justice services, and I'm very happy that, that ACS seems to be embracing this shift. I guess my concern is that 
theoretically child welfare should be years ahead of the curve, should be positions to really offer viable models and examples of neighborhood-based services to a less evolved juvenile justice system. But the reality is, and, and this is, you know, this spans the tenures of every ACS commissioner. We've heard a lot of rhetorical support for neighborhood-based services over the past decade, but our system still falls far, far short of really being positively integrated into the life of, of the communities in which its presence is, is most pervasive. Simply setting up an office in somebody's community is not neighborhood-basing. Um, only 13.7% of New York City's foster children live in their home community districts, and we actually seem to be giving up on that as, as a measure of our success. Um, the number of children receiving community-based preventive services has declined by 25% in the past two years, according to this issue of the watch. And the preventive system has been badly damaged over the past couple of years. Rather than being grounded in, in the principles on which it was founded, principles of respect and partnership with families, in, increasingly it's, it's prescriptive, it's coercive. A large percentage of families receiving these services are, are court-ordered to receive the services. And, um, and as this issue of the watch points out, um, community partnership is, is, is not even mentioned in, in the strategic plan. Um, of course, we believe I'm going to. So I just I want to make sure Ron has time to respond yeah. to you before he goes. Okay, so. let me. I'll stop there. Thanks, Ron. I, I know you have to leave, but I, I want to get your response to that. So, um, first of all, I, I uh, have you know enormous respect for um, Mike's uh, commitment to child welfare and parents and families, which spans uh, 35 years maybe in chronology, but um, his imprint has extraordinary reach. And uh, the value of his opinion is um, so important because what's behind Mike is a cadre of parents who have been through uh, the child welfare system, and so um, that's meaningful. Um, and as a judge, I had lots and lots of parents in front of me who went through conferences and talked to me about what it was like to be in conferences and the quality of the information that they came out of conferences with, which was um, ranged from they had a completely perfect understanding of what their rights were and who I was as a judge to they came out of a conference thinking that, you know, the decision had already been made and I was a rubber stamp for the child protective manager. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. With respect to, to prevention and um, the fact that the strategic plan that Mike references doesn't say community in it, um, you know, I, I think that, as I said during my remarks, um, parents are community, and each priority in the strategic plan um, talks about 
other than the first one, which is workforce empowerment and making the people who work at ACS feel valued, which I think is um, the only way we're going to get our folks to do their job um, in a way that shows caring for our clients. Um, Each of the priorities is about um, empowering the, the parents of our youth, whether they're whether it's in a child protective setting or in a um, or, or or teen permanency, um, it's my guess, and I don't know what's in Mike's mind, that there was a particular um, uh, that there was particular uh, difficulty um, with the TPR part of my strategic plan. Um, of our ACS strategic plan because I am really troubled, very troubled by um, our numbers on termination of parental rights cases and by the number of young people in New York City who have been, we just looked at numbers with respect to kinship guardianship where um, we've got over a thousand kids who have been in the same foster home, the same kinship foster home for over three years. Um, And that's not right for children because little kids do not live in adult time frames. Mm -hmm. And so I, in the strategic plan, laid out the fact that in New York, you know, the, the law is within 15 out of 22 months, you file a TPR. We didn't make up the law. The law is our elected officials made up the law. That's how our government works. And I laid it out and we're not filing TPRs. We're in violation of the law. So I think that that struck a chord with a lot of people who care about parents and said, gosh, they're going to come down on parents without providing preventive services, without providing, you know, without providing services in people's communities. And there's a real imbalance there that is mean-spirited and unfair. Um, You know, I think that, uh, that, that um, what Mike is talking about is um, not, uh, wrong or misguided. I think that um, we are looking carefully at the quality of our preventive services and how we're doing. We are um, trying to figure out um, to what extent some of our preventive services should be more evidence-based because some of our family's needs are complicated or more complicated than general preventive can attend to. Um, And we take what he says seriously. So I would never just say, no, he's wrong, because he's someone who has um, substantial experience and who behind him has the input from the people who are our clients. I know you have to run now, um, but thank you so much for... Um, I want to say something, though. I want to say that if there are questions that people have... Um, on issues that someone isn't here to answer, namely on preventive services and issues in the watch unrelated to juvenile justice because we can cover juvenile justice, Um, Andrew will figure out a way to have those sent to me. And to the extent that we can provide answers and Andrew can provide a forum for there to be a QA. and a um, I'm happy to facilitate that because I don't want my leaving to leave people who have, an- have questions about that part of the watch um, to go unanswered. I know you won't have the back and forth, but um, I'm happy to, to accommodate that so that you don't 
Right. Okay? We will figure it and out. And I thank you all very much for being here. So I'm going to bring up Larry Bushing. Larry is Executive Deputy Commissioner at ACS, who overseeing the Juvenile Justice side, the Division of Youth and Family Justice. Can I just say I'm so glad the Commissioner said that before he left about taking more questions. When he was talking about um, he knew we couldn't anticipate millions and millions of questions, and I knew he was leaving, I started to get very nervous. Right. So <laughs> I'm glad I don't we'll have to sure answer all of We'll make sure you get every question today. about preventive <laughs> services. So we'll talk about juvenile justice side since Larry is up here. And, and I think, Gabrielle, you've got some deep experience on this. One of the issues that's been raised and that the commissioner spoke a little bit about is planning this city-based system. I mean, there's not a lot of time before – if this gets through the legislature, there will not be a lot of time before you have to have contracts up and running and organizations up and running. Non-secure, I think, is supposed to happen as soon as this September. Is that right? Um, so first off, Gabrielle, could you define non-secure and limited secure first? Or, sure. And, sec and then second, what kind of involvement would you like to see the advocates and community organizations and community residents have in the process of deciding who gets these contracts and how the programs are shaped? Great. Thanks. Can everyone hear me? Yep. Hi, thank you. First of all, thank you, Andrew, and the New School for um, providing this forum, for inviting me um, to speak. And I just want to start by saying I would echo um, what Commissioner Richter said, that this is a unique moment for us to serve New York City's children close to home, which is something that the Correctional Association has supported for many, many, many years, um, long before this legislation, long before the Department of Justice um, found the horrible conditions inside state-operated facilities. However, we also believe that the details of the plan, which I'm going to speak to in a moment, are paramount. And we believe that the operation of this system will transcend particular administrations. It will transcend Commissioner Richter. It will transcend Executive Deputy Commissioner Bushing. It will probably transcend my tenure as an advocate. Um, and what that means is that we have a moment where we don't need to just bring children home. We need to do it right, and we need to really be at the drawing board. We have money right now, about $12 million is allocated in the state budget this year towards this program. About $9 million of that will be offset by the closure of OCFS facilities. But we have a moment where we have political attention, we have money, we have momentum, and we have people of goodwill, including the people in this room and the leaders of the, of the various agencies. And so the Correctional Association and myself as an advocate who's represented children in family court and has also worked on the policy side of things, we're thinking very deeply about how do we do this in a way that ensures durable protections for children, that transcend the Bloomberg administration, that transcend the Cuomo administration, that transcend, you know, maybe our lifetimes, because children in care in every jurisdiction nationwide are at risk. It doesn't matter if they're placed in their home community, doesn't matter if they're placed 500 miles from home, those things matter for a lot of things. They matter for community outcomes, they matter for children's well-being, but it's also true that kids right now on Rikers Island are at risk. 
right? They're close to us, but they're at risk. Kids in secure detention facilities right now, very close to home, are at risk. And I'm going to talk about some of those numbers later. So it's not just about where kids are placed. It's about how we place them and what kind of protections we have in place. And I admire the work of ACS to really think about those protections and to think about oversight. And I'm going to kind of dig deeper a little bit into that. But I just want to start by framing that issue. And, you know, I have felt in the year or so since we've been talking about realignment, sometimes I get phone calls from reporters or people and they say, you know, do you support the city or do you support the state? And I'm like, I support children, actually. <laughs> it's not about Gladys Carrion or Ron Richter. It's not about the Correctional Association. It's about children. And it's about making sure that the mechanisms in place for children, the protections, the oversight, the minimum standards of care, travel with children and are instituted in a way right now that they're not in any facility, regardless of who runs it. And we have the chance to be a national leader, right? And to really have, like the way we talk about the Missouri model, for people to say, this is how they did it in New York when they went to the drawing board. And I hope that we transcend politics in doing that. And I sound a little bit like Obama, right? I'd like to transcend the Republicans and the Democrats. I'd like to transcend the city. Maybe I'm not quite as smooth as Good him, luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that was a bad. I, said, I read the audience didn't really respond to it. I was like, I'm definitely not as cool as he is, and I'm not the president, and I can't sing. But... Um, what I mean is transcend sort of the politics of this moment to really think about putting children and communities first. So to go to your question about what we'd like to see with regard to communities, um, so I think this planning process is really important. And as Andrew pointed out, there's a little bit of challenge with timing, that if the legislation passes, the legislation sort of would authorize the city to bring New York's kids close to home and to start operating its own facilities, non-secure and limited secure, and I will define those in a moment, um, in September for non-secure facilities and in April of 2013 for limited secure. Um, as we all are aware, there's city contractual processes. They'll be doing a negotiated acquisition in order to find providers. All of that has front-loaded time. So what that means is those plans are already underway, as they have to be, right, if we're going to have these systems operational by September. So there's a little bit of a, of a tension between engaging communities and advocates and family members and all the ways that we heard Mike speak about when, at the same time, a very real planning process is already underway and has been underway and has to be. So um, what should we do because of that? So I'm going to start with the definitions and then talk for a moment about policy solutions and then wrap up because I know there's other folks and other questions. So non-secure facilities are a misnomer. That's what I want to say. Non-secure does not mean non-secure. They're actually locked facilities. There's barbed wire sometimes, you know, or um, I'm sorry, mesh over the windows or bars. One of the things I really hope New York City does is change some of the nomenclature because it's really confusing because we say kids are in non-secure placements but they're actually prisons so it's the equivalent of like a low security and the adult side the way we have like minimum security you know and we have medium and we have maximum so non-secure facility in the current OCFS operated system is a locked facility I've just in one recently you know mesh over the walls kids in really really awful uniforms kids wear sneakers with shoelaces that define their behavioral level that's their distinguishing feature the color of their shoelaces um, so and they're not free to leave so non-secure does not mean non-secure. Non-secure means minimum security, um, relatively speaking. So that's what a non-secure facility is. It is the lowest level of confined care 
in state-operated placements, again, I'm using the current state definitions for kids charged with juvenile delinquencies. So juvenile delinquencies are kids as as young as the age of seven and up until their 16th birthday in New York State who have committed an act which would be a crime but for their age. New York is one of only two states where all 16- and 17-year-olds are automatically prosecuted as adults, regardless of what they do. So we're not talking about kids who right. are prosecuted as adults. So how's limited secure different so from So limited that? secure is a sort of a rough analog of a medium secure in the adult system. It is the highest level of care for a child charged with juvenile delinquency, with a rare exception that I'm going to speak about in a moment, and it's a higher security level. They often have barbed wire fences currently in the state model, so it's just in one where, you know, there's big high fences with barbed wires across the top, um, but just sort of more secure, higher restrictions than... Right. Non-secure, but sometimes functionally, frankly, they're the same. If you went inside a non-secure, limited secure, you might not know the difference. So are there examples, Larry, you would note, are there examples of nonprofit organizations running this kind of facility in New York or only in elsewhere? So I, the, the analog that I would draw is um, in our non-secure detention system, we have uh, 15 group homes here located in New York City, they're right next to um, – uh, they're in neighborhoods. They're right ne- they have neighbors right next door. Um, they don't have barbed wire fences around them, although some of them have fences around them. They – one of the things I, I, I uh, really agree that the, the non-secure terminology is a misnomer, and uh, particularly as, you know, we think about – having facilities that are uh, in group homes and things like that that are close to community, uh, I think people get a little nervous when you say, we're moving a home uh, for kids who have been convicted of crimes right next to you, and it's non-secure. I think it's really uh, probably in other jurisdictions they call it um, staff secure, meaning um, that, uh, you know, they don't have all the hardware that many of the other, uh, the more secure facilities would have, but... um, uh, but they have a, a staffing level and they have uh, a mechanisms in place that um, prevent youth from leaving. And sta- if, you, if you try to leave, they will be stopped. Right. Um, uh, sometimes they, you know, we have a f- small number of, of kids who get out of our non-secure facilities, but it's a relatively small number. Um, they're run by the nonprofits. They're um, uh, very much in, um, um, in buildings that, for the most part, are like the homes around them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kids have bedrooms. Um, uh, some of the facilities, uh, they encourage the kids to cook with, uh, with the staff and to learn various skills. Um, they have recreation sites. So a number of the providers are here, here in the room. Um, so that's, uh, uh, that's kind of uh, what the analog, I think, could be mm-hmm. um, for the placement facilities um, just to, to, to put it together kind of roughly. They're not service-rich. I can say that. They're um, um, primarily designed to um, make sure that kids get from uh, the point where the case is filed against them in court up until, um, up until the case is adjudicated. Right. And so we, there are not a, a ton of services in there, but in terms of um, conditions and uh, design of the uh, location, that's, uh, that's similar. I would say there's one other exception, as I see Cindy's looking at me saying, when are you going to talk about the Boys Town Placement Homes? Um, OCFS contracts with um, uh, Boys Town to have two facilities in Brooklyn that are similar to what I just described, um, and they have um, uh, 
teaching parents or some, some word like that. And, and basically this is a couple who works with the youth in the home to create as similar to a home setting as possible and to teach skills of that kid that they would get in, in their home and also works with the parents to give the parents that mm-hmm. type of um, uh, structure and tools as to how to, how to monitor and supervise and so support. So you f- foresee these new ones will be much more service rich than the than the detention pro- or the, the pre-placement programs you're yeah, I, now. yeah so how are you going to forecast the the capacity how do you have a so you don't i mean one of the big problems with the yeah. state has been this massive capacity that right. taxpayers are paying for how do you avoid right. and that you, and, and it, you, you're trying to strike a balance right you don't want to go in and say um uh you know short, shortchange yourself so you don't have sufficient capacity, mm-hmm. and then you end up kind of having to having um, not as good facilities as you want. On the other hand, you don't want to pour all your resources into facilities. Um, what we did was we essentially have taken the, and this is what the bill does, it takes the current population that's in limited, secure, and non-secure. And as the commissioner, and, and as commissioner showed, um, that number has been brought down by 60% since 2006. So to take that number, um, we would have basically, instead of us sending money upstate to pay half the bill for the state, the money would instead be coming down to New York City to support us establishing these residences here. And um, uh, it's a block grant. So we are incentivized to continue to uh, develop richer um, evidence-based or promising practices um, interventions that are community-based, if we can do that, we can actually then, uh, if we're successful in that, we can then bring that population down even further. Okay. I want to bring Angela into this. Angela, you've been doing this work, similar work in London, and now here, um, the MST program here in Brooklyn. If you could talk a little bit about how your program works. Often, some of the cases you've described pretty intense, right? I mean, these are kids who, many of the kids who are going to be going into these evidence-based programs or who already are, have been adjudicated for pretty serious crimes and sometimes repeated crimes. Um, Tell us a little bit about that work and particularly your relationship with the families and how you engage them. Well, um, a typical case that we would get would be um, usually um, male, predominantly male, um, usually aged between 14 and 16. 80% already have ACS involvement, so that could mean educational neglect or involvement with child protective services, which we heard a lot about earlier. Um, They will have committed multiple offences, burglary, assault, robbery, um, usually burglary, assault, robbery on people that they know. Um, there's a long um, disaffection with school and uh, usually our youth are around three years behind with hardly any credits. Um, so what we, we're dealing with is a lot of families that are raised in poverty in um, projects around um, Brooklyn and Manhattan. So um, they're lacking in community connections. So what we have to do, we go into the home four to six hours a week at the beginning of treatment, and then we work with the caregiver to try and get get them to take control 
back for their youth and with their youth. So we would be looking at involving our youth in pro-social activities to try to get them away from gang involvement, to try to get them to be all the things that they're interested in that they've never been able to take on board before, we can help with that. So our therapists go into the home and the kitchen table approach that Commissioner Richter was talking about is, is what MST is. We go into the home four to six hours a week and we, we will work with the family. We are there all the time with the family. Um, so we, we kind of... Is that, that the kind of thing yeah. you're... Yeah. I mean, tell us a little bit about... A case, uh, give us an example of, of, I mean, obviously you can't give the personal details, but, you know, a kid who's been arrested for burglary and assault, a mother who's not eager to work with you, who's already been through the PINS process, been upset, what, how do you deal with that? That's <laughs> oh, quite difficult. <laughs> but um, but what, what we do is um, we have to make sure that the... Um, the families know that we're competent, that the therapists are competent, they're not judgmental, they're there to help the family take control back um, with this youth. So, so what, what we'll try and do is um, we'll, we'll engage them and we'll try and get mum, it's usually mum, single parent, to work with us to look at how she's been parenting and try with strength based so we will look at what has been going right in the um, in the home and try and work with that and look at anger management if if mom has been um, finding it really hard she's losing her temper all the time with the youth to try and look at ways of of controlling that and try and look at ways of praising the youth because that's a a lot of the time that does not happen in in families well one of the Um, things i remark on having spoken with some of the young people who've been through this is how before placement, before landing either upstate or in the system, they've not been going home, they've not been spending time with their parents, they're alienated from their parents, and having been through this process, those I've spoken with anyway are now actually have pretty solid relationships with their parents, at least in the time following the program, which is fairly remarkable, sort of an example, I mean, emblematic of what seems to be achievable with really professional services that are done intensively, which government usually can't afford. <laughs> so we're talking about scaling up those programs and programs like them. Um, the question, the one other question I have for you, I guess, is how do you make sure, what, what is fundamental to making this work so that you're sure these young people are at home in the evening when they're supposed to be home so that they don't get violated for their probation I mean, what are the mechanisms for changing behaviour? Some of the mechanisms are to keep... um, to to connect um, families with um, communities and to get them to... We we try and find out how um, the extended family works, how friends can can help with that. So it's kind of the parent isn't alone. So the parent can mobilise social supports to help with um, trying to keep the, the... 
the youth at home. So if the youth does AWOL, it's about the families and the therapists going out and looking around the places that the youth usually frequents. And that's something that we find out early on in treatment. We try to find out where they're going, who they're with, what they're doing. And, um, and then the, um, the therapist and the caregiver can, are able, they're empowered to go out and try and find where the youth is. And you have a pretty clearly defined system of um, incentives for the, for the kids too, right? Yeah, I mean, incentives can be, um, they're not always materialistic. Mm -hmm. They're not always gift cards. They're, they're um, things like an hour extra, staying up an hour extra, um, working with probation. They may be able to get an hour's um, extra um, off of their curfew, that kind of thing. So it, it's, and, it, and it can be, you know, we've had um, parents who have printed out a certificate um, and put it, given it to their youth to say, well done, you've done really well, you've attended school um, 85%, whereas when we, at the beginning of the treatment, it was maybe 10%. So th those kind of things work as well, as well as, yes, we do, we do have um, a reward system and a con consequence system as well. Right. Um, you know, clearly much of what's happening in these systems is compelling. It's stuff that a lot of people in this room have worked for for a long time. Um, Mike, you made a very strong point that I want to come back to about the idea that juvenile justice and child welfare policy and so much else in the human services world can only be successful or could be so much more successful if they are developed with people in the communities most affected. The flip side of that, given what Larry's describing about these group homes, is the danger of nimbyism and the sort of fear of these programs. Um, what would be the best way, given the short timeline here, what would be the best way to engage communities in a positive way to make this work? Do you have ideas to put out there? We, there, yes, and uh, let me just start by saying, you know, MST sounds like a wonderful model. I mean, the, the more I listened to you, the more similar it sounded to the work that we were doing at, at Reedland, what's now called the Harlem Children's Zone, like early in, in the 1980s. Um, so, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of this is, is not brand new. Uh, the idea of community partnership is not brand new. There are people who've been doing it. We use evidence-based like as if it was a mantra, but we're very selective about what we're willing to consider evidence-based. Mm -hmm. If you look at the bridge builders in Highbridge, the same research institute that, that's been retained to evaluate community partnership, Chapin Hall, maybe the premier research institute in the nation, in my unbiased opinion, uh, did, did a multi-year evaluation of the bridge builders that, that showed very encouraging results. Um, why is that not being considered evidence-based? Okay, um, I think um, you know there's nothing wrong with with putting emphasis on evidence-based models, but they don't all have to be imported from from somewhere outside of of New York City. There there are people who've been pouring their hearts and souls into this work for for over a decade now, and um, who need to be better enfranchised, better enfranchised in in, in this strategic plan. I'll stop there and give someone else a chance. Okay. Gabrielle. Yeah. 
Can you comment on that? Yeah, point? I can. I hope everyone claps at the end of what I say, too. I'm going to try for that. So I um, want to say I think one of the things that we would really hope to see is for the city to release its plan as soon as possible. Um, the legislation says that one community hearing has to be held and that the plan has to be up 30 days before the community hearing. I think one community hearing in a city as big as New York with only 30 days notice to communities, many of the communities where these young people come from have literacy issues, um, have lack resources, do not necessarily have uh, the ability to access the web where the plan will be posted. I think there's some really serious concerns about what a public hearing is when there's one hearing probably during working hours when many poor people in the most impacted communities don't have the kinds of vacation days I have, for example, to take a day and go to, I mean, I get paid to go to hearings, right? But other people don't have that opportunity. So what does community engagement look like when we when we talked about these? the RFPs are already being circulated or about to be circulated. Um, we already have a set of providers we know are the authorized agencies, the folks that the city will be contracted with, and a lot of the plans, again, by necessity, are underway. We hope that they are, right? Because if the kids are going to come home in September, we need to have an infrastructure in place. At the same time, how are we involving advocates and communities? So it's really hard when there's been no public release of a plan yet. And I understand from the city's perspective that the authorizing legislation was just released in Governor Cuomo's proposal. So that provides some challenges. So it's not about criticizing the city or state. It's about what do we do moving forward given what is, right? What is? This is what is. What do we do? So one of the things is to really draw on local knowledge. Um, one of the folks in the room is the Reverend Ruben Austria from Community Connections um, uh, for Families for Youth, who's, and he has a fantastic position paper that's recently released on ways that we can engage communities. Uh, Reverend Austria has been working in Mott Haven and the Bronx to develop local knowledge, and I really encourage you to speak to him afterwards. Ruben, can you just maybe raise your hand? Sure. It's uh, Reverend Ruben, R-U-B-E-N, Austria, A-U-S-T-R-I-A. And some of the ideas, and, and I'm going to be... Um, borrowing a little bit from Reverend Austria's work here, but are to identify, invest, and share leadership with community leaders. So it's more than having one parent, right? We've all been on these panels where there's a kid or a parent. It's often the same parent, right? It's, and it's often the parent who has a master's degree who winds up on a lot of panels. And, and you know, the, again, it's not about criticizing a particular leader or a particular administration. These problems transcend New York, right? But it's really about digging deep and saying, how do we empower communities? Communities in New York City know how to work with their youth, right? The most impacted communities have support structures already in place, both informal and formal, for working with at-risk youth. And city agencies and advocacy organizations, I hold the mirror up to myself and my work, right? We have to work with folks and share decision-making power. We have to share resources. A community-based organization might be working on a budget of $4,000, right? And then we say, like, well, they can't meet our standards, right? We, and I, I'm the we in here, too, they can't come to a conference prepared to talk about this issue at this level of detail. Or sometimes people call me and they say, you know, can you bring a youth to this, um, be on this task force? And I'm like, well, the task force has a 300-page report, and the kid has a fifth-grade reading level, right? And no computer. So how are we engaging youth voices? Oh, good. Now I get claps in the middle. Thank you. Um, but it's really real, right? And another, um, again, barring from Reverend Austria's work, is about 
developing learning communities because there's a performance-driven database approach that stakeholders have and expect. But there's also local knowledge. Mike spoke about that. And there's qualitative research, right? People in communities know what works. Okay, so my father's in the room who's a guidance counselor on Staten Island for many, many years and works with a local nonprofit, African Refuge, that their budget is, you know, a budget of a large nonprofit is what they deal with. What we deal with in like a couple of weeks is their yearly budget. But they have folks who've worked in the community with kids from Liberia for, you know, really struggling, kids who are former war soldiers, right? And these are just community members who have mentored kids who've worked with them in the Park Hill Projects who aren't at these kinds of meetings, right? I mean, my father's here because he's my father, but the folks from Park Hill who are mentoring kids from Liberia, mentoring former child war soldiers who are now here struggling to acclimate, who are dealing with very serious trauma, right? Those, that kind of community-based knowledge is not currently represented in juvenile justice reform. Right, exactly so we need to have... Oh, exactly wow, twice? Of- Thank you. We need to have learning communities where we bring this kind of qualitative and data-driven knowledge together. We also have to share data with communities. So I will say, like, a lot of the information that I saw today was the first time I've seen it publicly presented. And this is what I do as a professional every day. Like, I read this stuff at midnight in my house, right? Do communities, I imagine, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but most of the people in this room are not community members from the communities most impacted by juvenile justice. Some of us are. Some of you may be, right? But many are not. You know, many people in this room, again, some people, I know some people in this room who have had kids in the juvenile justice system, but many of those people are not represented. And how is this information getting to them? There needs to be transparency. So the data, for example, on the harms to kids in the system is available. So right now the city council requires the Division of Youth and Family Justice and ACS to post on their website reports about kids who are harmed in city custody, which is happening right now. In fiscal year 2011, there were 13 indicated child abuse allegations of kids inside city facilities. Those are just the allegations that were found to be true of child abuse, right? Um, and those are a small, the, those are just the ones that got investigated and found and that actually like made it to the point that there was a finding. And for the child protective workers in the room, you know, that's a pretty intense process, right? But is that information available for communities to respond to and to say, look, kids are getting abused in facilities, in city custody. What can we do about that? Can we go inside those facilities? These, com- these facilities are largely locked from the public, and I know Larry spoke, uh, excuse me, Executive Deputy Commissioner Bushing spoke about um, the, the group home model, but we also know that the legislation authorizes the city to take over, to lease for $1 a year the OCFS facilities. And we imagine, and it seems likely, that the city plans to open some of the current OCFS facilities, which are not brownstones, with the exception of the Brooklyn to Brooklyn model, um, to open those kinds of facilities. And, and the legislation allows for that and says that that's probably going to happen. So are we going to have a locked facility where, again, community members aren't regularly visiting? One of the things we'd like to see is facilities, whether they're group homes or larger facilities, open to the public. We'd also, and I'm going to end just with two other quick things, is to increase the administrative capacity of neighborhood organizations, to work with small neighborhood organizations that are already in communities and help those communities grow so that they can be partners.
partners in juvenile justice. So we need data transparency. We need shared decision-making, more than an advisory board or more than a parent on a task force. But we have to be willing to cede some of the authority, which is hard for city agencies. It's hard for nonprofits. It's hard for me. But we have to be willing to cede some of the authority to shared decision-making with people in communities so that it's not just a top-down approach, but it's true partnership. And the research shows that when you do this, you get safer outcomes. The research shows that when you involve families and communities in the juvenile justice system, kids do better and communities are safer because communities are where kids come from and communities are where kids are loved and communities are where kids in placement are going to come home to. So one of the tensions in the... uh in the community partnerships that we looked at, some of the best of them are able to reach exactly the kind of organization that your father's working with. Um, but on the f- other hand, these are funded by city government. Like you say, it's ceding power. It's a very difficult thing mm-hmm. to ask of government to fund community organizers who are essentially there yeah. in the ideal world to advise them, sometimes to oppose them. Larry, another question I've heard repeatedly is to what degree is the NYPD involved in the planning and thinking about this effort? So um, uh, we have the NYPD um, serving in a number of capacities in which we look at juvenile justice and plan for juvenile justice issues. Uh, The deputy mayor has a quarterly meeting where we go over all the data. We talk about um, what's happening, what the trends are, where the arrests are occurring, what the big um, uh, issues are with regard to crime. We uh, take into account their concerns when we're thinking about these evidence-based programs or other programs we're developing. Um, We work with them to make sure that um, we are being responsive to keeping communities safe. Um, they, have, they were at the table with us. They were quite supportive of the Close to Home initiative. They had some concerns, which they voiced, about you know, community safety, but I think they uh, similarly see this as a positive for being able to work with kids better in the community and keep them closer to home. And you know, They also want to see crime reductions, and they also want to see kids um, uh, safely... Um, being in their community. So, so they've, been, they've been part of the conversation throughout. Well, we promised we'd get you out of here at 10.30, and it's 10.36. So thanks to the panel, and thanks all of you for coming.